Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Not Your African Cliché. Before we get into today's episode, though, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher, where we are Not Your African Cliché, as well as SoundCloud, where we are NYAC Podcast. Don't forget to reach out to us on social media, Facebook, we are Not Your African Cliché, Twitter, at NYAC Podcast, and Instagram, NYAC underscore podcast. You can also email us at notyourafricancliche at gmail.com. Now, enjoy the rest of the episode. Hi, my name is Arthur Musa, and you're listening to Not Your African Cliche. Welcome to the first episode of season three of Not Your African Cliche. My name is Ify. We are back like we never left. And on today's episode, we have a special guest, but I'll wait to introduce him. But first, everybody else, you can go around and introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. This is Ife. It's good to be back. Hey, guys. It's Onyeka, a.k.a. Yeka O, and it really is good to be back. It's up. Yes. For two months. On today's episode, we are very, very excited and very honored to have author Musa, who is a Ghanaian filmmaker based in Boston. And his first film, Niger Beta, a documentary about a team of Nigerian students from MIT who launched and ran a robotics camp for high schoolers in Lagos. The film has since been premiered in Cannes at the Pan-African International Film Festival in 2016. Um, Niger Beta has received awards and so much press on the film festival tour in Africa, Europe, and North America. And right now, author is currently working on a larger film project at MIT that documents um, the journey of five African students through college. So... Welcome, Arthur. Thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, really exciting. It's my second podcast ever, so this is really cool. And uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So before we actually dive into the meat of the conversation, which is to interview Arthur and hear more about his journey as a filmmaker, his journey to filmmaking, the films he's made so far. Before we do that, I want us to go around and talk about how our summers... <laughs> Do people really want to hear that, though? This is Ife. Yes. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> <Hey>, Mom. <laughs> do you want to start us off, though, Ife? Yes, I can do that. Um, I haven't done much traveling this summer, but um, this summer has been really fulfilling because it's my first year living in Ann Arbor, and so it's my it has been my first summer in the city of Ann Arbor, and it's been exciting to see the city come to life in the summer <laughs> and just what the experience is like we had um a series of summer festivals like throughout the month of june in june my family came to visit me in july i took tennis lessons and that was exciting and this month i started boxing so like summer has just been a whirlwind of 
fun activities like all happening in the city that I live in. So that's been that's been exciting. And also, guys, ah, heads up, I'm about to share a top secret with you guys. <laughs> this will change the game for you. <laughs> so, guys, I cook a lot and. That's primarily because of my Nigerian upbringing. But um, recently, I discovered a different way of making chicken, of baking chicken. And guys, if you've never used smoked paprika, fix your life. (laughs) It would completely change the game. Like, people will be asking you, what did you put in chicken? And don't tell them, but... (laughs) We'll just keep it between us. Can I <laughs> can I add to that? On this podcast. Yes. Can I add to that? So I've been using smoked yes. paprika for vegetables also. Mm. So it works. It works mm. great for uh, for veggies also. Just that point. Mm. <laughs> Y'all yeah, thought we were yeah. talking about filmmaking, and we're out here talking about food. It's a cooking Always show yours. today. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to you know share the love. Hey guys, it's Ifa. So my summer has been chill. Um, I've gone to see some theater shows. I've so I saw this. I saw Dreamgirls with Amber Riley, and it was phenomenal. You know how oh, wow. um, in Dreamgirls the movie uh, they gave power ballads to both um, Jennifer Hudson and Beyonce for mm-hmm. the for the dream girls on west end they gave Riley all the power ballads because the person that was playing <laughs> beyonce did not she couldn't carry it so you know the list you don't listen uh was beyonce's but it became Riley's. anyway essentially mm-hmm. it was great it was a great great show um i saw another weird one with damian lewis and sofio canedo about a man who falls in love with an actual goat. White people are weird. Mm. Um, mm. And I went to a church, a church retreat, church camp. I call it Church Glatzenbury because it's like, you know, Glatzenbury, the music festival. So there's a lot of music, but there's a lot of like fun stuff and silent discos and parties and stuff. So that's that's my summer so far. Uh, Yeka O over here. My summer... Um, kind of started off really strange because I was taking my qualifying exams, which I talked about in January, which I passed, by the way, guys. Woo-hoo. Yay! Congratulations. <laughs> like they say, to God be the glory. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I didn't do a lot of traveling, but I did go to Michigan, and I'm low-key mm-hmm. salty that Ify wasn't like, and I'm not going to see me, but that's fine. <laughs> so... <laughs> I went to Michigan to hang out with my brother, and then I got to see Ify, and we got to, you know, take some nice pictures, which, shout out to you, girl. Bright price going all the way up. Um, so that part was that part was fun, just to hang out with friends and meet new people. That was really good. Um, and then just kind of winding down now, I had a cookout yesterday. So I live in this really, really cool apartment where, like, it used to be a stadium, a baseball stadium. And then they converted oh, them oh. into apartments. So, like, it's just huge space, mm-hmm. and it, it was great. So we had a cookout yesterday, still recovering, but, you know, yeah, that's, that's been my summer. Just really chill. Really. Nice, nice. Okay, so my summer. Summary, um, uh, because I kind of spent a year traveling with Nigel Betha, 
Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, spends all my vacation on that to all the film festivals, meeting people and kind of enjoying seeing new towns and things like that. So um, by the time the summer came around, it was time for work. And I've been really focused on just kind of preparing a Kickstarter campaign, which I guess we'll get to talk a little bit about for my mm-hmm. other film. So it's really been kind of, you know, buck buck. Um, so thank you so much, author, for reaching out to us. And actually, we can just start off with that. How did you hear about um, our podcast? Yeah, so um, so I've kind of been <laughs> uh, I've been an indie filmmaker, producer, marketer, you know, everything kind of mm-hmm. mode. Um, mm. And <clears throat> like you like you mentioned, um, thanks for that generous introduction. You know, Niger. Beta um, is my first film. It has spent a year doing fe- film festivals in in Europe, in Africa, in uh, in North America, and I really wanted to carve out some time to kind of promote it and get it out into the world so people could see mm-hmm. it and you could have conversations about it. So one of the yeah. things that I had on my list to do was to contact media agencies, you know, blogs that were doing really interesting. Um, new profiles of Africans and African culture and things that were going on in Africa on the continent in the diaspora. And mm. <clears throat> a friend of mine, uh, when I was in, at a film festival in Atlanta, um, is a big fan of podcasts. And so he you know, gave me this idea of like looking out for podcasts because there was some really interesting stuff going on in the podcast world, which mm. um, I'm afraid I wasn't aware of until then. <laughs> So that was one of my to-dos, was to, you know, just really go see what um, podcasts were doing um, conversations about Africa. And you happen to be on a list of top 10 podcasts to check out, I believe. I can't remember if it was on OK Africa or um, some other website. But Yeah, it was um, OK Africa. Okay, yeah. So I, I, I reached out to... To you guys because um, because I found you that way. Give a shout out to OK Africa. <laughs> shout out to if I yeah, watch it for the future. And so before we actually get to talking about you know your path and journey as a filmmaker and as well as the films you've created, we want to get to know who author is. That's so funny because that's a question that I I always uh, I mean through the four or five or six years of filming. Um, the students at MIT, that's something I would always ask them at the beginning of the year, who are you? Mm, <laughs> um, look at that. And, and now I guess it's payback time. Yes. Um, I'm a brother, a son, an African, mm. Mm. Um, I'm Ukrainian, I'm Ghanaian, mm. I'm an engineer and a filmmaker, I'm a friend, um, I'm an uncle, um, what else? Yeah, I guess I guess I'm all, uh, all of those things. Yeah, but I guess currently for the purpose of this of this conversation, mostly a filmmaker. Yeah, we learned that your mom is Ukrainian, and like you said, you're Ukrainian, you're Ghanaian. So your mom is Ukrainian. You were born in the Ukraine, and your dad is Ghanaian, and you were raised in Ghana. So when we discovered that, we were wondering how did this shape your identity, and what was your childhood like? Um. So you're right. I was born in Ukraine um, in the early 80s. That was as part of the Soviet Union back then. Um, my my dad got um, 
a scholarship to go study in the Soviet Union. Uh, my parents met as students, and you know, then the rest was history. So they started uh, our family in the Soviet Union or in Ukraine back then. And then when I was three, we moved to Ghana to Accra, um, and mm. that's where I grew up. So I think you know, I consider myself. Well, and then since then, you know, I left Ghana when I was 19. So I lived in Ghana from three until 19 and then came to the U.S. for college um, and have lived here since then. So I feel like, you know, when you ask me about my identity, it's hard to say exactly what it is, um, even mm. though I think, you know, I consider myself primarily Ghanaian, right? Even though I've been mm. living in the U.S. because I think Ghana shaped um, the key formative years you know from three to 19 so mm. no matter how long i stay away there are parts of me that are fundamentally Ghanaian and cannot be changed oh. um even though you know there is a part of me now that is american <laughs> so my identity has always been fluid and i think um some of my not to sound elitist or anything but i find that somehow the friends that i connect with um on the deepest level have some sort of you know weird mix of identities i think there's something maybe it's something about dislocation and and being able to identify um with being a stranger in most places in the world that kind mm -hmm. of draws some people with you know hybrid identities together but i think mm -hmm. the comfort that i take in our world today is that there are a lot more people that that kind of don't really fit in one box or one place um, so that's kind of cool. Yeah. And like you said, like you've been in the States since you're 19, which is, it's been about 17 years now. And I was just wondering what was your journey to the States like, and it's more specifically MIT like. Yeah. Um, so I, I was in, I think the first time I heard about MIT was in, um, secondary school in Ghana. So I went to Prosec. Um, mm -hmm. It's short for Presbyterian Boys Secondary School, mm -hmm. and it's located in the capital. It's a boarding school. I remember my dad coming to visit in boarding school once and say and telling me that he had heard about this exam that you could take, um, and if you did well on it, you could get scholarships to um, to schools in the U.S. So he mm -hmm. basically gave me the task of looking into that. He said, "Go research it. Go find out what that is." And, and look into that. And I think part of the reason he said it was, <clears throat> excuse me, there was um, um, a little bit of un instability in the university system in Ghana uh, around the time that I was about to graduate from secondary school. And the, the universities shut down for a substantial amount of time, which resulted in there being a lag in um, the admissions process. So it mm -hmm. used to be that when you graduated from secondary school, you would had to wait about a year for your results to come in and for the process, you know, of admission to college to mm -hmm. be completed. But then after the, um, the instability and the delays, it became a two year wait. So I think there was, you know, people started looking harder for opportunities to continue education elsewhere you know so if there weren't spaces in Ghana where else could we go and mm -hmm. and you know and we had some upperclassmen who were already at MIT from Prosec 
Um, and I think they sort of paved the way because once, you know, one person has done it, they share information mm-hmm. with, um, you know, their younger brothers and sisters. And, you know, we basically mm-hmm. um, taught each other where the opportunities were and how, 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 do, we, how do we get there. Um, so I applied, you know, the, the SAT with a number of other friends and ended up getting into a number of schools and, and accepting M- MIT's offer. Cool. Uh, that this is fair. I think that's very reminiscent of a lot of our stories. Of diaspora people who um, went to secondary school in, you know, on the continent and went to college in the states. Right. To dig deeper, what what was your experience at MIT like? You know, arriving um, on MIT's campus, you know, at the age of nineteen, and then, you know, d- getting your undergraduate degree there, and then also just a much bigger picture: what has been your experience in the States so far? Hmm. So I got to MIT in 2000. It was August 19th. And uh, one of the things I remember actually was the flight over. Um, And I almost wanted to make (laughs) another movie, uh, another documentary, um, because I took a Ghana Airways flight I would say about a quarter to half of that flight was filled with classmates or age mates who were headed to American colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I flew on the same flight with two classmates from Persec who were also headed to MIT. Nice. So it was a very, <laughs> it was like a school bus, except it was a school <laughs> airplane. <laughs> you could walk over, you know, and, yeah. and, and the other thing is we had all gone through the U.S. embassies. um a uh, program that kind of offered information about colleges in the U.S. So we would go every week to kind of research, um, you know, the SAT application process or the, the SAT process, the college mm. application process, you know, ranking the schools, finding the ones that would fit our needs and all of that stuff. So we had made a lot of friends that weren't even in our high school or secondary school. And so most of the faces on that flight were familiar. And so I, I always thought that was quite significant to be on a flight that, that represented such a huge migration of uh, young talent from Ghana to, to the United States, right? And the film that I had in mind was like, you know, where are these people 15 years later? You know, how many of them have gone back? How many of them have stayed? You know, what are, how are they navigating the questions of, you know, reconnecting with home and homeland, right? Um, whether they're away from Ghana or or in Ghana or back in Ghana, so that was um, not the film that I made, but I made something else. But anyway, um, um, but then I got to Logan and I had a host family that MIT had com- connected me with. So it's a couple of people that worked at MIT that um, had offered to you know be friends and kind of facilitate. Um, cultural acclimatization, so mm-hmm, to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So they actually met me at the airport, which was very nice and kind of drove me there. Yeah, they, they be, they've since become really close friends. In fact, they had a huge role in the film that I embarked on making, uh, One Day to Go Fly, which I've been working on mm-hmm. for six years. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But in terms of my MIT experience, I would say... Um, the one of the things that stood out is Africans do form a community. 
Mm. And maybe that's, you know, familiar for your experiences as well. It didn't matter where on the mm. continent you were from, oh. instantly mm. they, beca- they became your, you know, older brothers and sisters. They mm. were, you know, important resources <clears throat> academically, but also for life. They would explain, you know, mm. thing, everything from like tipping culture, which is very different from back home in Ghana, <laughs> um, to, you know, clothes, to how to get good deals, to, mm-hmm. you know, everything, um, how to survive coursework and all of that. MIT academically was tough, but it was also exciting because um, I, I just felt like every semester there was just so much new things about the, the world to learn, you know, that... Um, that was, you know, for a science and, and engineering geek, that was really exciting. So it was a great place to kind of indulge in that. The thing that I would say helped me survive MIT and thrive there was actually creative writing. So eventually, mm-hmm. after about a year, I found creative writing as a, sort of my go-to for, you know, uh, I, I would always take a, a creative writing course, whether it was a poetry class or a fiction workshop where you wrote sh- short stories. And those are the classes where I'd kind of like lose myself, lose track of time, really connect with mm. other classmates and really connect with the professors. So some of my deepest um, friendships came um, and mentorships came from my creative writing courses, which balanced the, mm. the rest of the workload. We found out that you got your undergraduate and graduate degrees in electrical engineering and computer science, and then went on to USC um, School of Cinematic Arts to study film production. And when um, when I read that, I had so many questions. <laughs> so, so, excuse me if I get a little excited, but like, what, if you can pinpoint exactly, but and it doesn't have to be exact, but what, you know, inspired this transition to filmmaking? Like, you know, how did you even make that transition happen? And one uh, last question that I have in pertaining to this is, you know, why film mm-hmm. versus some other form of visual arts, like say photography, you know, mixed yeah. with like some f- photo essay or what not. So, sorry, can I give you time to think about that? If sure. you want, do you want to tell us why you're asking that question? <laughs> this well. is Ife, by the way. <laughs> so, um, this is Ify, and I... Oh my gosh, I'm going to get personal. Um, so, I got my undergraduate degree in neuroscience, and in doing that, I had already envisioned my life going a certain way. <clears throat> I just... Reading your about your transition, I was just like... I clutched my imaginary pearls and I was like, (laughs) I'm not the only one that, you know, has like a science background and, but also has this like interest and passion and skill set in film slash photo. And I've been, I'm still in the process of figuring out what my transition will look like, but, um, yeah, so that's. So essentially, you're the perfect person for her to ask all of these questions. <laughs> no, no, that's that's fantastic. I uh, I have I've I've had a huge grin on my face as you were telling telling me your story and all of that because um, I absolutely re- relate. I mean, that was exactly my conflict as well. Mm-hmm. And for me, storytelling has always been around. Um, yeah. You know, like I said at MIT, I you know my degrees are in engineering, mm-hmm. but the classes that 
I love the most, my favorite courses were writing, poetry and fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, in Prisec in Ghana, in secondary school, I was a science student because you had to kind of pick, um, you know, like a, yeah. a, you know, an area. Path, yeah. My, the thing that defined my secondary school experience was drama club. So theater mm-hmm. is what I did. You yeah. know, we wrote, we performed our own stuff. Um, we, we did a whole bunch of other things. Um, and that was the thing that I loved the most. And... You know, even back in Ukraine, so I, I actually went back to Ukraine for almost a year in the late 80s. Um, and I went to school there and there also I was on stage and, you know, did a lot of kind of performance storytelling type stuff. So I guess at some point um, I was working as an engineer in video and it was the beginning of the HD revolution. So, you know, TVs, the flat screen TVs, HD TVs mm-hmm. were kind of becoming popular um and we started working in the technology that went into that kind of stuff and i eventually bought a camcorder an hd camcorder that had all these fancy manual controls um and when i started playing with it i realized it wasn't the technology that fascinated me the most about um about moving images or films Mm -hmm. It was really the technology's ability to kind of get get to the heart of what it means to be human, right? Mm. So I liked seeing complex people. I liked how stories could kind of put me in somebody's shoes or, mm. yeah, you know, that kind of magic was what I have always loved. What I was in theater, what I was in poetry, what I was in writing, I, I love that ability to connect to to humanity mm. and um and i've always loved watching films um i think they're mm. a powerful medium so it was there that i guess uh filmmaking found me just like photography found you mm. and from then on you know i would have friends kind of help me shoot really horrible short films <laughs> um you know i was reading all these forums about how you know, to make cameras, you know, give you a certain look and all of that stuff. Mm. And I got Final Cut Pro and started learning how to edit. And, um, but it was a really slow process. And so I figured when I sat back and thought about it, I thought, you know, there are two options I have. Either I could kind of learn on my own and keep doing things and then maybe find a local filmmaker that I could apprentice with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and spend 10 to 15 years doing that. Or I could maybe take two years out of my life, two to three years, and go to film school and really dedicate mm-hmm. those two to three years to mastering the craft of filmmaking, right? Mm-hmm. And so I looked into the film school thing and decided that was the way that I wanted to go. But it came with risks. You know, you know I was an engineer who, needed to stay in the U- who wanted to stay in the U.S., um, and my immigration status was tied to my engineering. So I was like, mm-hmm. you know, you know, can I really afford to take the risk of going to film school and all of that? Can I even pay for it? And can I even get in, you know? Hashtag um, immigrant struggles. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag you know, F- uh, F1 visa struggles. Exactly. <laughs> F1, H1B and all of that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I feel like we do spend a lot of time kind of, um, bending to the system to 
and and unfortunately that may not be the most efficient way to be our fullest selves right and i think part of the reason why i went to film school in order to try and shift my career into filmmaking and storytelling uh on a professional level is i felt like i needed to be honest with myself um i feel like you can be most effective in life if you live your truest self right mm. so it's been sort of my um i don't know my philosophy for a while and it was part of the reason i came out as gay in college it was important for me to be honest with the people i love the most with my family mm -hmm. you know my parents my my brother my best friends my classmates uh, it was a difficult process um but mm -hmm. you know i i did that and then when i kind of looked at my life as an engineer and thinking you know i wanted to be a filmmaker um mm -hmm. i felt like i could be most impactful um through my work by being a filmmaker telling african stories exploring mm -hmm. those kinds of stories that don't get seen or don't get made um you know stories that i wish existed when i was growing up right you know i want mm -hmm. my nephew and my niece and my godsons to kind of have an opportunity to see those so i felt like you know it'd be a fun profession because it was it was something i was i loved doing but it would mm -hmm there was the added benefit of it coming with a mission right it had a fulfilling purpose so there was a way a useful way in which i could contribute to ghana's progress to africa's progress right because i felt i feel like mm -hmm. we need stories to raise mirrors um to our societies and to mm -hmm. ourselves as individuals so that you know we can critically decide which which ways we want to move forward um mm -hmm. so anyway so i'm was, kind of rumbling now that was, um, that, was and, that was great though yeah, it was good but real. yeah but you know what i, I think I'd, I'd like to mention one other thing um the other thing i realized was there was kind of a defining moment that happened at mit with one of my writing professors and mm. he's a bit of a celebrity now um juno <laughs> diaz oh and, my goodness <laughs> humble brag my favorite humble you said, brag or not so humble brag um, <laughs> when you said it, mirror I immediately thought of Juno Diaz because this Juno Diaz quote about like being you know people of color mm -hmm. having been underrepresented in literature yeah. and had like feeling like we're vampires because like yeah. we don't see our reflection so like once you said like oh, mirror wow. I was like Juno Diaz I'm like, look at that uh, Juno, Juno was, a, uh, was an awesome teacher um, and has been a great mentor since then but i remember going to it was after class and then he was like you know walk with me i have some other notes i want to give you about something i had written in his class and he said something really cool it was probably really he, he probably doesn't remember this and it was probably very offhand for him but for me it was kind of like an earth-shaking moment because oh, wow. we're walking to his office and he said it was in the context of a, a longer thing he said but he said something like go get your heart broken on two continents uh go do something that's not writing you know live life get get experiences and then when you're ready to write reach out to me and i'll guide you through the mfa writing application process i'll tell you what the programs are mm. i'll tell you where the scholarships are and things like that that like that mm. right and i think probably for him it was a very simple moment but for me, it was the first time that somebody I respected um, mm -hmm. had 
uttered this alternative professional vision for my life, right? Mm-hmm. It, up until then, writing, storytelling, you know, the, the, t- my time in drama club, there were always hobbies. There were things that I did mm-hmm. because I enjoyed them. I enjoyed doing them. I enjoyed the friends that, that enjoyed doing them, right? And, but here was somebody who I respected a lot who said, hey, you can actually go do an MFA and treat this as a professional thing, right? Um, and so that was, I think that kind of was a defining moment as well, or like a turning point that echoed later. Awesome. That's beautiful. Okay, so switching, so ch- switching gears to talk about your film, we've all seen Ninja Beta. I was, I was wondering what the inspiration was for making those films. If you could also touch on like what that process was like shooting Ninja Beta, like how it came together, including the crew, yeah. what the filming process was like, you know, what the frustrations and yeah. joys were like. This is if I to just tack on to that, like why why a documentary instead of a scripted film? Yeah, cool. Um well thank you for checking it out. Uh appreciate mm-hmm. that. And I think the first thing I would mention is that uh Nijabeta came out of One Day to Go Fly. And one day to go fly is still. We've finished shooting it, but it's um, we're about to go into edit, um, mm-hmm. so it's still a work in progress. So that's the bigger film. And then while while I was making one day to go fly, which in which I was following originally five students, but then now at the end we ended up with four. Okay. Through through MIT, over the four years uh, from first year until graduation, the Nigerian student, Philip, Philip Abel, um, at the end of his first year, told me he was going to teach robotics to kids in Nigeria, in Lagos. And so I was instantly excited. I was like, you know, this will make a great sequence in one day to go fly, because even after one year, he's kind of taking the things that he's learned out in the world back home. Eventually, I made it out there and... You know, as I was filming the robotics camp, you know, I, I stayed with them. So it was for the last 10 days. They run the program for five, five weeks. So they had about 30, 35 kids from all over Nigeria and a couple of students from Ghana. Uh, they housed them at Grange School in Ikeja, Lagos. And they had um, other Nigerian MIT students teach them robotics for over five weeks, right? And in... in in the course of the learning, they also take them out to kind of sightsee Lagos and have fun and all that stuff. So I was there for the last 10 days when uh, the program culminated in a competition. And I stayed with them and got to meet and make friends with some of the kids and, you know, the instructors and all of that. And I realized that people were offering so many opinions about their lives, about Nigeria, and I started filming those and realized then that the film was going to be a little bit bigger than a sequence in One Day I To Go Fly, that it had mm. to be its own separate film that was about robotics and why teaching robotics was necessary in a place like Lagos, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say, I mean, in terms of the filming, the production process, it was very, you know, do-it-yourself. So I credit my... USC School of Cinematic Arts film training for giving me mm-hmm. the skills to be able to be a guerrilla filmmaker. 
you know, I keep things cheap by, you know, I produce, I have a producing partner, but she's mostly based in LA. So mm-hmm. we've done one of the trips to Africa with her. But, um, you know, I produce, I direct, I shoot, I do sound when I can, unless it's a big scene. Then I, um, you know, hire somebody else to do sound. Um, mm-hmm. But for the for the filming for Naija Beta, it was all um, a one-person crew. I had the training, you know, the film school training paid off to be able to do mm-hmm. all of those roles because um, in film school at USC, you actually do rotate responsibilities and do you do lens to edit, to do record and do sound, mm. to produce, to direct, to write and all that stuff. In terms of why a documentary, not a fiction film, I would say the answer would be two reasons. So I started one day to go fly in 2011, right? Mm. We've been making that film since 2011. Wow. And that film started because... In my last semester of film school, which I didn't graduate from, by the way, I did I, um, some kind of a film school dropout. <laughs> I did. Um, Blood twist. Well, I, I know. Said I did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> no, so it's a three year program. I did two years. Um, I was lucky. I had a scholarship both years, and then the scholarship ran out. So I was like, mm. you know, do I finish the program? and get into debt or do I go out and make a, a film in the real world and mm. I thought I had you know I had had the the um, the honor I was blessed to you know have had that scholarship to actually be able to learn those skills so mm. I felt like you know the next stage of learning had to be out in the in the world and so any debt I had to go into that would be better spent by making a film out in the real world now in the, my last yeah. semester in film school I had uh, edited a, a documentary, and that was my first introductory to nonfiction um, cinema. And I fell in love with this idea that you know people open up to you, real people open up to you about their personal lives, and that was absolutely breathtaking and magical. So I wanted to make a documentary um, as my first film because I'd fallen in love with documentary and its power. And then I also felt like documentary had a lower financial barrier to entry. So with a fiction film, you kind of have to write it and then kind of, mm. you know, cast it. You have to line up the financing and all of that stuff. And I wasn't ready uh, right out of film school. I didn't have, you know, the investors and all that stuff. So, you know, let's continue my journey to become a better filmmaker. I thought documentary was a more was a more appropriate format. You know, I can tell you the story of how One Day to Go Fly, the idea came up, which is another tale of its own. But um, it was the right film to make in documentary format. So I think there's a, there's a right format for every tale. And so for a film about African youth taking charge of African challenges and teaching robotics to kids in Nigeria, that felt like something we had to see for real, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. in some ways it, it's a story that found me and I just kind of followed it. And for yeah. one day to go fly initially, I was going to do it in one year and kind of take, you know, students at the beginning of the experience. So first year students, some students in the middle of the college experience and then some about to graduate and then just follow them for a year and then make a film about being in Africa and at MIT. 
But then the more I thought about it, I felt like, you know, I would really want to see if I was a viewer, the same students, the same mm-hmm. people kind of grow and change on screen. So physically they're, you know, maturing, their ideas about the world are, are maturing, the understanding of themselves and their position in whatever the world, the, the spaces they're occupying is changing as well. And I thought that would be powerful. You could write that and there's a fiction form, uh, but I really think that we have something special in one day to go fly just because we, we follow the same four students over four years. That's really cool. Um, Nika, over here, it's interesting that you say that as far as like following the characters because when I was watching the movie, it was just interesting to see that one of the leading characters, one of the students, um, and I don't know when this was recorded, but now that she's actually in uh, college and is now an actor, I'm like, hmm, that's just really interesting. Exactly. So, and, and so wait, this is Jemima, right? Yeah. Are you talking about Jemima? Yeah. So, so what is she in? I was like, her face is so familiar. <laughs> she's in Sh- MTV Sugar. Um, oh, she is. Where? She is, yeah. 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 Exactly. And for me, it's really, it's really fascinating because, you know, when I was filming her in the robotics camp, She's a she's the main voice of the students, like mm-hmm. like you know, uh, because she's just so compelling. I actually didn't know she'd become a character, but every time you know the camera was around, she had something interesting to mm-hmm. offer, whether it was about politics or or you know life or robotics or um, anything else. Um, so she's just that undeniable, mm-hmm. and but you know in, when we filmed her it sounded like she was ready to kind of finish college, uh, finish secondary school and then head abroad somewhere, so leave right. Nigeria, right? Um, so two or three years later, when I learned that she was in college in Nigeria and she was an, a, a budding starlet, you know, starring in this, you know, one of the lead roles in, in this big show, um, I thought it was wonderful because, you know, it, here was an example of a promising young Nigerian who had a vision set to leave, who actually is staying and, and participating in society. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and that's the power of documentary, right? You know, you don't know what will happen, but right. when it has happened, it's it's kind of true, and that truth kind of has power. But yeah, so yeah, we have Jamimo Sunde in our film. This is Ife. You're talking about how you didn't know that Jamima would be a main character, like. You know, like when you are shooting a documentary, I can imagine that you have hours and hours of footage. Like, how do you then like craft your story? Do you think about the themes that you want your story to tell beforehand? Or do you just like go through hours of footage and kind of try to pull out the themes and, you know, like talk me through your process of editing? Because I I, I find that really fascinating. So Nigel Betal was a tough film to make. Hmm. Um, because, well, with One Day to Go Fly, I said to myself, it's going to be a film about a few African students going through college in America. And the themes are going to be about transformation and change. You know, how much of Africa do you keep? How much of America do you absorb in that process? And we would start from the day they arrived, and then we will end when they graduate. And it, it was important that we will go home with each one of them. Mm-hmm. So we filmed, we filmed that documentary exactly how I had planned it. And so I think the edit will be a different beast from mm-hmm. Nigel Beta. 
with Nigel Beta, I thought it was going to be a sequence of Philip from One Day to Go Fly teaching robotics um, in in Nigeria to high school kids. Mm-hmm. But then when we got there, there were all these other interesting people that were, you know, becoming characters. And so I was like, okay, you know, we will integrate them. So there are security guards, there's a nurse mm-hmm, who doesn't mm-hmm. make it into the final card. There's a, there's a taxi driver, Abby, who was in some earlier cuts as well, who had some interesting perspectives as well. And so my editor and I got together and we created a, a film that was about the robotics camp with, you know, a few of these other characters out there. Mm-hmm. But then when I watched it, I thought, you know, this is not if this is not it. You know, something there's something disappointing about this film. It's too literal. Mm-hmm. It's too one layered, right? It's the story of exactly what we <laughs> we're saying the story is, right? Yeah. But that is not what drew me to this particular tale and what these young people were doing. So I had to kind of go back to the drawing board and really wrestle and try to figure out what it what, what are the themes what are the real themes what is the story why did i you know hop on a plane to shoot more than 10 hours of footage of mm-hmm. of this story and so it took us 4 years to really edit it and obviously wow. we weren't working on it every single day part of it was kind of putting it aside and then allowing time to really help me figure out what the film was about Toby, who's the dynamic robotics instructor in the yeah. film in Nigeria, Ni- yeah, she told me that they were having a recruiting session for the third year they were going to run this program. So I mm-hmm. grabbed my camera and went out there to film it, um, so I could have some B-roll mm-hmm. to set up the film. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, it was a little bit disappointing because there were only about three people in the in the info session. Um, so visually, it didn't look exciting because here was this revolutionary program and yet only three people were interested in you know possibly being recruited so recruiting from mit like recruiting fellow mit students correct because they had two recruiting sessions the they had to recruit instructors from Mm -hmm. mit so fellow mit Mm -hmm. students and then they had to recruit uh students in nigeria Mm -hmm. to be participants to learn uh, the robotics right so at MIT, they were recruiting for, um, for employees, essentially, mm-hmm. right? So I went to film that, but I hang out, and, and after the session, the Obina and Obina, the two, one of the, the two co-founders, mm-hmm. yeah. started talking about you know, their plans for after graduating from MIT. And I realized that mm-hmm. one of them was very terrified about uh, moving back to Nigeria mm-hmm. and doing a startup there because, you know, their elections, the 2015 elections were coming up because this was in 2014. Mm-hmm. You know, there were rumors of, you know, there's going to be violence, blah, 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 blah. There's Boko Haram going on and all of that stuff, you know. And when you're sitting in the West in America, that's the news that you hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other, Obina was saying, hey, you know, we can't let that be a distraction. You know, we have to stay focused. We have to go back and, and implement and implement and all that stuff. Yeah. And that's where, you know, when I when I heard that conversation, I turned my camera on and I filmed it. And for me, that was instrumental in helping me figure out that my my film Nigeria Beta wasn't really about wasn't merely about a robotics camp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was about the um, you know that tension that um, 
young Africans in the diaspora feel about staying away versus going back home, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like we we all have this weight on our shoulders. I feel about we have to make our lives matter for the places that we come from and yeah. for the continent. And how do we do that, right? So mm-hmm. I felt like the instructors, the founders were, in some ways, even though they were teaching kids robotics, they were also teaching themselves how to do things in Nigeria, how mm-hmm. to plug back into Nigerian society mm-hmm. um, after being away from it for so long. Or, you know, for some of them, like for Toby, it was the first time going, going to Nigeria because yeah. she was born and raised in the U.S. to yeah. Nigerian parents. Mm-hmm. So that became the main theme or the main kind of subtext under the film. And, you know, after that, things just fell into place because, you know, it it clarified what I had been chasing. Mm. That's awesome. Okay, so my question for Arthur is, so I'm listening to everything you're saying and, you know, I'm hearing tension, I'm hearing risk, um, decision. So on a more personal level, you know, after like two years of film school and then trying to figure out what next, I'm trying to understand what was really running through your mind because you sound so calm and collected about it. Like, oh, you know, I was done in school and then well, like two years in, no more funding, what's good? Like, but like, how did you feel at that point? And, you know, when did you, like, like were you always comfortable with, you know, starting on the documentary route or like, like I went to film school because I wanted to be a filmmaker creating the kinds of works that I wanted to create. So it sounds a little bit selfish, but I really wanted to, you know, I didn't, I, I, my goal wasn't to become, to plug into, um, you know, Hollywood studio corporate culture, mm-hmm. um, which not that that's an, an invalid um, profession. I think that's right. But, you know, I had a very, very specific idea for why I wanted to go to film school. It was I was about to turn 30. You know, I was like, I need to do this before I turn 30, because after 30, I'm not going to have the guts to like <laughs> take this on. Mm-hmm. So I was like, OK, I'm going to go to film school. I'm going to do two to three years and it's going to be a compressed time where I learn the skills that I need to make films. And then after that, I'm going to make films. And you're right. Am I, I thought I was going to make fiction films and I still intend to. In fact, I'm itching to do something in fiction after I finish One Day to Go Fly. I think my third film will be a fiction film, uh, hopefully on the continent. But um, it seemed like the right stepping stone. You know, documentary, you know, the, the, the way I ended up do- editing a documentary in my last semester of film school was uh, one of my teachers said, if you want to grow as a director, edit a documentary because it's really going to force you to write a story with footage that somebody else brings in, right? And it's footage that doesn't necessarily make sense together and doesn't tell a straightforward, obvious narrative. So you, the editor, are going to have to craft it in post, of course, with the director's guidance. Um, And so, and then also the other way in which it helps you direct is it shows you people in their it, it it 
gives you footage to pay attention to real people. How do real people act? You know, how do real people look like on camera when they're honest? How do they look like when they're not being honest on camera, right? So those are those are experiences that you can you can learn from as a director editing a documentary. And so can I just seemed, say that sorry, yeah. can I just say that author is like dropping gems about filmmaking and film school. This is like essentially <laughs> a seminar that you guys are getting for free. So I hope yeah. you're taking notes. <laughs> FYI. Well, sorry. Go on. <laughs> thank you. Um yeah, so documentary was the right format. I think it it was also practical in terms of the low cost barrier to entry. I did feel like I wasn't ready to take on a big blockbuster film, you know, set in Nigeria and Ghana or even in the U.S. Um, and I didn't have a script ready that I was ready, that I was, you know, I felt very strong, strongly about, uh, as in mm. this was the project that I was going to shoot next. So it made sense to kind of buy myself some time um, to learn some more and grow as a filmmaker by making a film that, you know, expanded or, or took place over multiple years. That's awesome. I mean, it was the, the sad part. The sad part of having to leave film school was, you know, you kind of have a cohort of people. And mm-hmm. when you're working intensely on 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 making films, you're spending, you know, 12 hours a day for multiple days shooting you really bond with people and so Mm -hmm. it's sad when you have to kind of not graduate with your cohort so that part was you know a little bit sad but you know the friendships I formed have have been have continued and I'm still collaborating with with some of the people the sound mix for example for Nigel Betta was done by Christophe Nassif who was one of my closest friends from from film school Mm -hmm. how did you pick what what tunes should go in certain places? That was the first question. Right. And then my second question um, is, did you, while you were filming, feel any sense of responsibility to the continent as far as showing a, a holistic narrative? Um, yeah. So music for the film, uh, I guess I would say that the music is all original. So it was written... It was composed and recorded by a talented young man that I met in Boston at the Berkeley College of Music, Jay Krause. He's American, um, but I needed original music, or I went with original music because it's hard to license mm-hmm. music in general. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I know that. You know, for example, there was a there was a there was a song that. Um, Amazonto song that <laughs> the the students were dancing to mm-hmm. in the scene at the pool, right? I and I reached out to the the people that own the rights to that, the musician, and you know we couldn't afford, we couldn't make that work. So you know eventually we figured out a way to replace the music there with original score. But I think it worked really well. So what I did was I reached out to the Berkeley College of Music, which was you know a quick walk away from where I lived in Boston, which was very lucky. Uh, they're a very talented bunch out there and they have a jobs board. So I posted an ad on there and got, you know, an overwhelming number of submissions um, to offering to, to compose music for the film. 
And it became overwhelming because, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the reels that I heard were very, they were very, what's what? epic. No, no, no. I would say, <laughs> all right. So, <clears throat> sorry, I'm just keeping it real. So okay. So yeah. that's, that's your word. I will use epic. <laughs> they were epic, very, Shit. very Hollywood type score, scores, right? I see, and I think I see. part of the reason you, they have those on the reels is in and I think in in scoring programs like that they give you scenes from Hollywood films to mm. create your own score too as an exercise right mm. so they're training you to score to write music for big Hollywood productions and then there were other things that I heard which sounded very much like you know American indie um, it was a very American indie sound, kind of like, you know, there's a certain kind of guitar. Mm, um, acoustic. Yeah, acoustic. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, and it didn't feel right. So I got overwhelmed. But then all of a sudden I checked out this reel by this guy who was kind of very down to earth and he was doing all kinds of experimental stuff. And I mean, it wasn't that out there, um, but it 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 seemed very bare bones and sparse right and not trying to draw too much attention to himself or to itself mm -hmm. and even his profile said something like oh i can't remember the words but it 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 it, it read to me like he wasn't trying to impress hollywood right and so i met with him and we connected you know i and in fact it was it was weird because we were i was worried i wouldn't be able to afford what he would charge me and all that stuff. So he named his price and it was exactly the number that I had in my budget for mm -hmm. the thing. So it was, it was a perfect molding of, of, uh, of creatives. And then the other nervous point was, you know, I sent him the film and he started writing music and we talked about, you know, you know, the feelings that I wanted in different spots and things like that. Uh, what I wanted the music to do, how much music, where I didn't want music and things like that. And I was really nervous about hearing the very first thing he, he would ever send me because, mm. you know, you know, if you hate it, how do you say you hate it? Right. And then, right. you know, and then what are the chances that, you know, somebody you just met, um, will get the sensibility that you're trying to create in a, in a very raw version of the cut. So it was a quite amazing. It was like a miracle when he sent me the first thing. It was the opening um, music cue for when the bird, you know, is in the sky and, yeah, that was really uh, and all that. Yeah, and it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect because it was very... I don't know. It just felt right, and I knew that Jay was the right person to work with. So it was it was a fantastic experience working with him. Mm. And we tried to bring in a little bit of African instrumentation, but then at some point I kind of let go of that because I felt like, you know, it was better to let him do the things that he loved to do mm. um, and bring his real sensibilities not everything had to be african about the film especially mm -hmm. because you know it is a tension about being westernized versus being african and all that stuff mm -hmm. so um that's kind of how we approach the music for that film um kind of mm -hmm. bare bones first you know energetic in the competition and it was it was an amazing time working with him i hope i get to work with him again 
And then your other question was, um, how much pressure did I feel about doing justice to Af representing Africa, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that, that's a question I've been... Um, that's a concern that I've had from the very beginning of both projects. I, and it's, it's a worry that I have because I feel like I myself, I'm influenced by cliches that are out there about mm -hmm. Africa, you know, because I grew up on the media that was created by the West. I grew up on, you know, the stories of, you know, poverty and sickness and, 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 and all of that, right? That's the sexy stuff and needing, needing saving and all of that. Mm -hmm. And as much as I want to create more com complex, complicated stories, I'm always like, try, I'm always trying to find ways to, to make my eyes new, right? So that I can see the ways in which I'm serving the old narratives. Um, so I might fail every now and then. Um, and, you know, one of the regrets I have for Niger Beta is there's a line. So I, I eventually, I have a voiceover in there. There's a line at the very beginning where I introduce myself and I say I'm from Ghana. Mm -hmm. And I don't end there, but I, I say another West African country. Mm -hmm. Right? Now, mm -hmm. for me, over the course of making both films, I've been honing in this honing in on this question of who is my primary audience? Mm. Are my films for Western eyes? Am I making films for Americans? Mm. Or am I making films for Africans? Mm. Right? Now, that good. line is not a line for Africans. Mm. Right? Yeah. Africans yeah. don't need me to explain that <laughs> Ghana is another West African country. <laughs> right? Mm. That's, that's, that's me kind of, that was a line that I felt like wasn't necessary, right? I mean, I think it, it, would, it would work even for Western audience, but that was me addressing the Western gaze mm. um, with that line. And if I had to do it over, I would edit that out. Mm. But that's a concern that I have. You know, what's my representation? Am I addressing, you know, there's a way to present Lagos that's about, you know, making it, cool and sexy and explaining it for people that have never been in an African context. And there's another way to assume that, you know, certain knowledge is fundamental. And I think, you know, for example, um, Juno's work does that a lot. It just assumes that, you know, that if it's you don't... It's just, you know, you know. Yeah, you know, you know. <laughs> and if you don't, then you, you'll figure it out, then, you yeah. know, by exposing yourself to more things. So... So yeah, I'm I'm constantly trying to not repeat stereotypes and cliches <laughs> um, yeah, to connect yeah. with your with your podcast um, title. <laughs> um, at the same time, you know, the the very last shot put that in there. My heart kind of like skipped a beat because it felt right on one level, but then on another level, I thought oh, you know, maybe there'll be people who say, you know, why is he focusing for so long on a typical image of, like, poverty, you know? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> or what could be interpreted as an image of poverty. But, but, um, but, you know, after screening it at festivals in many places, 
actually, and I wonder if it plays differently in a, in a theater when you're there with a group of people versus, you know, when you're watching it by yourself on a, on a computer mm. or on a TV screen. Mm-hmm. But um, it was kind of a moment that was Toby's thought about, you know, to be there. It kind of takes us back there. And for me, that shot reminded me of kind of my aunt on my dad's side. You know, she's worked hard her whole life. Um, <clears throat> she may not be necessarily wealthy, you know, but um, that's her life. You know, the festival director, Eric Mieni in in South Africa, we were at the Rapid Lion Film Festival. And for him, that shot, he saw a boy who was learning entrepreneurship skills. So mm-hmm. he saw a boy who not necessarily was missing out on education, but was you know, learning to become like some business tycoon in the future. Um, somebody else kind of sees that juxtaposition as kind of the old image of Africa versus the new image of Africa. Um, others see it as um, the juxtaposition of opportunity and the lack thereof and all that stuff. But I wanted it to be that long and a little bit trying in its length in order to force people to ask themselves the question and hopefully have a discussion afterwards about why was it so long? You know, mm. what have I seen? What was this? You know, it was kind of like, and it was meant to be abrupt because these stories, the story is continuing. Mm. This journey of trying to move our societies um, in interesting, productive new ways is a continuing thing. Mm. You know, the students, they learned robotics for five weeks, but then what are they going to do afterwards when they go back to their real lives, you know? Jemima thought she was ready to leave um, Nigeria, but she (laughs) ends up staying. We find out two years later, and now she's a film star and a a TV star. Obina, actually, both Obinas are back in Nigeria, and they've both launched uh, businesses of their own. Mm -hmm. Oni, I think, is back in Nigeria as well, although I don't have an update on what she's up to. You know, so these stories continue and it's mm-hmm. just a glimpse of of um, all the things that we're trying to do. So your podcast, you know, my filmmaking, you know, somebody's, you know, entre- being entrepreneurial with a film festival that gives African voices a platform. All of those things are kind of at an interesting moment and they're not complete yeah. stories yet. So that's kind of oh. why that, that, that scene ended that way. But but that was I brought up that scene because it was one of the things that I struggled with a lot and you know had to do a lot of critical thinking about how might this play and then also listen to my gut because I also don't believe <clears throat> that the remedy to the historical um, stereotypical poverty porn poverty porn portrayal of Africa. I don't think the remedy to that is to go to the opposite extreme and mm-hmm. now only shine right. a light on the pretty things or the positive mm-hmm. things. I think life and people mm-hmm. and our societies are more complicated than that. And so I was mm-hmm. hoping that Niger Beta would be as complicated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome because I had, I had um, thoughts about, you know, class because the people who had access to this robotics, you know, we'll talk you're not the organizer of the program so you wouldn't have <laughs> information about access but i was just i like the fact that you also included you know the the security guards and the guy that was painting i kind of showed a diversity of class mm-hmm. in the context of the film in terms of yeah so 
Yeah. Right, and actually, to pick it to to um, <clears throat> to to go further with that, actually, you know, great point, and it's it's a point that only Nigerians make <laughs> because <laughs> now because and here's what happened. So in the Lagos screening, right, we had two screenings at the African International Film Festival, mm-hmm. and then later on, about a month ago, we also screened at the Real Time International Film Festival. And they did a Skype Q&A with me. And in the three screenings for both festivals, because all three were in Lagos and people that saw the film in Lagos know the setting, they know um, Grange School. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they know that it's a... F- so they know it's a fancy school. And so people were like, why, why was this opportunity brought to Grange School with kids? And... The the reason that the and and it was my fault for not explaining in the film because I didn't think it would be necessary anywhere else that the students that uh, learn the robotics are actually not from Grange School. Okay, they're actually from all over the country. Some of them are from humbler backgrounds. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and you know a couple also from Ghana. So they're only renting the Grange School facilities over yeah. summer break okay. in order to house the students. Okay. So we're running short on time, and I want us to quickly wrap this up. Um, so just to run this by you guys, um, I want the last two questions to be about authors' experience navigating the international film circuit. I agree. And then lastly, what's next for him? Mm-hmm. So we can, yeah. Oh, okay. sorry, I have another question. Is it? Can I sneak in a question about, like, funding? Because, like, how did you... Did you crowd did you crowdfund this first the Niger Beta film or like essentially how have you been doing this and like working and yeah so yes yeah, so the film has been funded um, very in- independently so I started both well I started one day to go fly using my own savings and then a year and a half into it we decided my producer Brooke Turner and I decided to launch a Kickstarter. Because we felt like finally we had, you know, footage to share with people to say, hey, we're really serious. So we did a Kickstarter campaign in 2012 in towards the end and we raised 31,000. And so that helped us travel to the students home countries. But by that time, we had actually I had already gone to Nigeria and filmed uh, most of what became Niger Beta Mm -hmm. and then some of the other stuff that's going to go into one day to go fly. So. Crowdfunding was absolutely critical. Out of crowdfunding, we got a few additional grants that helped us finish Niger Niger Beta. So MIT, um, Paul Gray uh, is a professor is a a professor who's also former president of MIT. Mm. He heard about the project and offered some some funds to help us finish it. And I asked if we could use it to edit um, Niger Beta. And he said, yes. So MIT support came through with that, came Mm -hmm. for that. Um, So yeah, so grants, uh, a few grants, Kickstarter. And actually right now I'm in the last two or three days of a new Kickstarter to fund my other film, One Day to Go Fly. So we finished filming it, and we need a bunch of money to edit and to do all the post-production stuff, which is really expensive. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to raise $60,000 on Kickstarter and have been working the last several weeks to make that happen. So we have three more days left 
um, but it looks like we're gonna make it. So, so there's that. Um, and then, what was the other question? Oh, and the international film circuit. So initially, I would say I applied to film festivals um, that I'd heard about. Um, I think it's always a good idea to give yourself a shot at the topmost film festivals. So I obviously applied to Sundance and got rejected there. And then I started applying um, more broadly because once you know your top tier film festivals reject you, then you can <clears throat> go wider. And yeah. I would say it was really exciting to find that not only were African filmmakers being entrepreneurial and creating our own films, there were African film festival programmers or directors who were founding our own film festivals all around the world to mm. showcase African content. Mm. So there was the, you know, we premiered in Cannes in France, uh, the Pan-African Film Festival there. I think at that point it was the 13th edition. Um, we, uh, the second festival we screened in was a festival that focuses on filmmakers of color, uh, the Roxbury International Film Festival in Boston, and that's where we won our first award. Um, mm. Then we, you know, we basically screened at a lot of festivals that were either African-focused or were African-American or filmmakers of color or international, you know. So those are the communities that really embrace the film because I think I think because it tells the kind of story that doesn't often get told about our communities. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So that's been exciting, but it's, you know, it's been great to tour and to meet other film filmmakers and, you know, to mm -hmm. start new collaborations. For example, we're yeah. doing a, a comic book giveaway for the, with, with a, a writer that I met in Nigeria at Afrif wow. for, for our Kickstarter. <clears throat> uh, so, so that has been the experience with the International Film Festival circuit. In terms of the next project, it's, I'm really focused for the next year on finishing One Day to Go Fly. I'm also looking for um, material to adapt into a fiction film. Um, mm. As I mentioned, I'm itching to kind of work with actors and all of that. Ooh, ooh. So I'm looking, yeah. for, I'm looking for an ideal short story to convert into a mm. screenplay and writing some stuff in the pro in the, in, in the in the main, meantime as well. So that's yeah. what that. This has been so wonderful. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I'm speaking for myself, but this has <laughs> been so, so wonderful. Thank you so much, Arthur, for speaking with us. And, um, and so, like, Arthur said, like, he's currently running a Kickstarter for the post-production of his documentary, One Day I To Go Fly. And they're trying to raise $60,000, but by the time this episode comes out, um, the fundraiser will probably be over but um we'll definitely share this on our social platforms like in the meantime um yeah so but yeah that's yeah this is yeah this is great and i think i am very excited to see where you go next yes. author like like just to see what your career like eventually becomes and where you, the uh -huh. heights to which you will go Ooh. Um, and so like it can be one of our famous the claims to fame that we you know interviewed <laughs> filmmaker author mixer 
Yes, don't forget us when you get to it. <laughs> 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 oh. so I was going to say, I think... We get to paradise. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll all get there together at the same time, you know? Like, no, it's absolutely us pushing each other up. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, like, my efforts are very community-based. Um, yeah. So... You guys are carrying the film. You're, you know, you're sharing it with your networks. I really appreciate that, um, yeah. and I love what you guys are doing. Yeah, it was you. great to talk to you. Mm-hmm. This was a lot of fun yes. and an honor. Um, and great to talk to you too. Should we do watching? Should we do recommendations? Oh, yeah, we girl, haven't done that in a me, while. Let me end. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, oh my God! Oh, hey, you're stepping on getting... toes, girl. My bad. So was I hurting. I'm sorry, ma'am. <laughs> it's all it's all good. Um, so, Arthur, what we usually do on the podcast is at the end of every episode, we go around and talk about you know what it is that we're listening to, what kind of music we're listening to, what kind of books we're reading, um, shows we're watching. Okay. So yes, I'm listening to Show Them Camp's new album slash EP called Palm Wine Music. It's the best thing from Nigerian artists. Independent woman, please. Uh, Yika O, over here. I have been reading the thing around your neck for the longest time, guys. Like, so yeah, there's that. I'm listening. I'm listening to Femile's Ekabo new uh, live album, which we kind of did an Instagram story on. But yeah, so that's on Spinlight. You can go check that out. I, this is Ife. I'm listening to Adekunle Gold's new single, Color Me. Nigerian music is like really popping nowadays. Like, you know, it's been, yes. So um, I love the fusion of Yoruba and like English and how we're like going back to our roots and really embracing the high life that our parents mm. used to play and we used to, you know. So, yeah, so I read a lot of fiction, and right now I'm reading The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, and it's about this kid who lives on a um, reservation um, outside of Spokane, Washington, and it just follows his life and and all of that good stuff. So it's really fun. I've never read a story like this, so for me it's new, it's exciting to read about. Interesting stuff. Um, so this is Arthur, and... Honestly, I haven't been reading or listening to much. I've been so focused on the Kickstarter. But the last book I read was a really short one, quick read. It was called On Tyranny. And, you know, I, I think it's pretty pretty interesting, um, mm-hmm. especially for our times in for the times in the U.S. right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trevor Noah interviewed the author on his show, on the oh, Daily okay. Show. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, and then in terms of music, the my recent favorite album is, I forget the, the album's name, but it's by Nakane Toure from South Africa. All right. All right. All right. All right. Okay. So that's, that's it for, you know, the first episode of season three, right out the <laughs> gates, <laughs> banger episode. Yes, so yes, yeah, yes. thank you so much again, once again to author for being our guest, um, yeah, so we'll definitely be promoting his work on our social media platforms, even though, you know, by the time this episode comes out, the fundraiser will be over. But definitely you should be following him on all social platforms as well as following updates on his films. And, you know, definitely when they come out and they're available for downloads, putting some coins into his pockets. Um, mm-hmm. 
yeah, so that's it from the ladies of NYC, and yeah, it's a wrap. It was an honor okay. to talk to you. <laughs> this was so much fun. Thank, Thank you so you much. Thank you, sir.